six o'clock, so let's begin. I'm uh, guessing other people will join us, but let's start. Welcome everyone to this, the third program in Interfaith Action's virtual series, Understanding the Realities of the Israel-Palestine Conflict. And before we begin, Sid had asked for a couple of minutes to talk about some resources that are going to be in the chat. Uh, great. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Larry. Um, uh, David will put in the chat th links to three different resources. Uh, one is a letter that was uh, delivered to President Biden uh, and signed by the heads of all mainstream Christian denominations uh, within within the United States. It calls for a humanitarian uh, ceasefire. It calls for the establishment of uh, safe spaces in places of worship, schools, uh, UN facilities. Um, it also calls for accountability relative to the funds that the U.S. Uh, invests in Israel. And it also raises concerns about the sustainability of a multi-faith uh, environment or society within the Holy Land. So I think it's, it's something uh, worth reading. Uh, several years ago, <clears throat> when Interfaith Action did its faith frame for our policy work. It oh, indicated right. that uh, stories are yes, critically yes. important uh, to our understanding. And so also in the, the chat, I've listed a BBC uh, document that provides a profile of each of the individuals who were kidnapped uh, by Hamas. Uh, I think their stories are quite profound. And then the third um, link that I included, again, a, a story of an 84-year-old uh, Christian woman in Gaza City who was uh, sheltering in uh, the Holy Name Church. Uh, she went outside to see if her house was still standing, was uh, shot by soldiers laid in the street, and um, uh, ultimately a tank uh, drove over her, killing her. So again, I encourage uh, folks to read these uh, stories. <clears throat> uh, let me also indicate that I've uh, been surprised by uh, the, the connection of our programs to date with uh, commemorations. Uh, last week's program coincided with the commemoration of Kristallnacht in, in Germany. Uh, Kristallnacht being the, the night of broken glass or the, the night of crystal. Uh, when the Nazis first uh, began uh, a concentrated uh, effort at uh, genocide, destroying uh, Jewish um, places of worship, schools, hospitals, and homes. And ultimately, uh, during that Kristallnacht, 
the arrest of more than uh, 30,000 uh, Jews. And today is a commemoration of the murders of the six Jesuits who were part of the leadership of the uh, University of Central America in San Salvador, El Salvador. Uh, those Jesuits and the university were committed to creating efforts within society for public dialogue, uh, also for countering injustice, and finally for standing uh, with individuals uh, who were survivors of violence. Um, so it seems somewhat uh, fitting uh, that uh, today we again have a program uh, in tandem with a commemoration of forebears who worked uh, to uh, advance dialogue and peace and justice in situations of conflict. And, and finally, uh, one of those uh, Jesuits was a psychologist who worked in the field of mental health and uh, human rights, uh, Ignacio Martin Barro. And uh, Larry, I thought of you and uh, uh, the coinciding of his work in that field and your leadership as a psychiatrist in the field of uh, mental health and uh, human rights. And so uh, I thank you for maintaining uh, the passion of uh, the Jesuit uh, Martin Barro and thank you for your leadership tonight. I turn it back over to you. Thank you, Sid. I appreciate that. Um, so uh, we are honored tonight to have with us Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. She is a leading authority on the Middle East with particular expertise on U.S. foreign policy in the region, on Israel-Palestine, and on the way Middle East and Israel-Palestine-related issues play out in Congress and in U.S. domestic politics, policies, and legislation. Lara is a former officer in the U.S. Foreign Service with diplomatic postings in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. So, Lara, um, if it's all right with you, um, I would like to share a map that now I think a lot of people have probably seen that traces um, the land in Israel-Palestine over four historical periods. It's a somewhat controversial map. Not everyone um, agrees with its portrayal, but it gives a sense of where things are. And uh, it's my understanding that you'd like to begin with some questions. Am I understanding that right? I'm fine either way. I'm, I'm fine just talking, or you can start mail questions at this point. At this point, I'm prepared either way. Okay. Well, let me see if I can use my very limited technology to share this map. Can everybody see that okay? Um, okay. Apparently, I did not do it the right way. Um, just share the screen. Yeah, I press share screen. 
and I press the map. Is that not coming up? Mm -mm. Okay, well, I apologize for my lack of technological expertise, but um, perhaps you could begin, Laura, with sharing with us um, the ways in which um, the land over time has changed, uh, the ways in which settlements are currently a problem, um, and what you think would need to happen in regard to land and settlements in order for there to be a chance for Israel and Palestine to move toward a genuine, lasting, peaceful settlement? I know that's not an easy question. Those are all very short questions. I think I can get this done in five or 10 minutes and then we'll go on and talk about something else. Um, so first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you today. I have to say that the work I do every day is incredibly um, demoralizing and and sitting with a group of, of people who care enough to, in their own time, um, dig into this and, and try to think constructively about it. It, it sort of fills my soul. So I, I really, I appreciate what you're doing and I appreciate being invited into this circle. Um, and, and I'm really, I'd like to say that I, I will talk fairly briefly and I'd rather answer your questions because I'd rather talk about what you want to talk about. Um, so my starting point here is I looked at the title of this event, Displacement Settlements and Right of Return. And I thought, what do I need to unpack for people to explain those terms? Because there's a lot packed into them. It's a title that covers um, a lot of history, 70 some years of history, a whole lot of territory, both political and geographic. Um, so I kind of want to start off right there and, and take these words on. Um, and I think the first thing to understand, and it, the map would be helpful because the map really, it is it is controversial to show maps of the changing shape and size of, of Israel, but it, it does make a point, which is the borders have changed. They've changed in, in our lifetimes and in our parents' lifetimes. And and the starting point, I think, when I talk about this is is, dis, is the term displacement and why it comes up here. And, and thinking about Israel's creation, Israel um, declared independence in 1948. And there is, I am a Jewish American. I grew up with a founding myth, which was Israel was a land for out without a people for a people without a land. And that was a, a glorious myth. It, go, it goes along with, you know, we went there and made the desert bloom. The, the myth isn't just that it's beautiful and very elegant, because look, the land is waiting for us, we came. But it also speaks to you know generations of Jewish longing to return to a homeland, to have uh, national self-determination. It also speaks to the era of coming out of the horrors of the Holocaust, um, sense that we are not safe if we are not someplace where we are defending ourselves and together and can, can defend ourselves. And, and it played out in an era of international um, well-founded guilt over the Holocaust and what was done to the Jewish people. So that's the, the starting point. The challenge with land without a people for a people without a land, and, and truly the Jewish people in that sense were a people without a land, which isn't to say they didn't have citizenship in lands around the world, but a land of their own for national self-determination was something that, that they had not had since thousands of years. But Palestine was not a land without a people. <laughs> Um, and that's the starting point of uh, that sort of takes us, you know, there's a direct line between that and where we are today. Um, Palestine was a land that had been for generations under colonial rule. It had a 
population of indigenous people. Um, folks might call them Arabs at the time. The whole idea of a Palestinian um, identity nationality was already starting to gel in the era when Israel became a state, but it certainly became stronger in the era of trying to defend themselves as a people against what is seen by, by Palestinians as the new colonial power, which is Israel. Um, but there were there was a large population of people on the ground there, um, many of whom had generational ties going back hundreds and maybe more years. Um, and and the, I, the whole framing of Israel being created on a place that was empty and waiting for the Jews to come home um, was convenient for the world that wanted to support the establishment of the, the state of Israel, um, but wasn't particularly convenient for the people who were already there. And the creation of Israel was always going to involve displacement of Palestinians. Um, Israelis will point to what could have been a different future for Palestinians if the Arabs, and that's not just the Palestinians, it's the Arab states, had accepted the partition that was offered by the United Nations. Um, they point to that map, which would have been on the maps that you would have seen, um, which shows a much smaller state of Israel sort of incorporated into the body of what is what was then Palestine. And, you know, Palestinian areas would be everything else. Um, but even that involved the massive loss of land by Palestinians and displacement of many, many Palestinians. And what you saw instead was a war. And that was a war that was waged by um, Israel's neighbors. The neighboring Arabs had armies. Palestinians did not have an army, um, let's be clear. Um, and in the course of that war, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced. Um, for the narrative that I grew up with, they fled and they fled as hostile enemies who were leaving at the behest of the Arab states who said, we'll destroy the Jewish people, push them into the sea, and then you can go home. And by framing them that way, um, they were they, they effectively were deprived in the public narrative of any sense of sympathy. You chose to leave because you expected to be able to destroy the Jewish people. Therefore, there's no sympathy and you can't come back. Um, from a Palestinian perspective and from the perspective of even some of what are called the new historians who aren't particularly new anymore in Israel, that is largely a myth. Palestinians fled out of fear because there were attacks and massacres or they were actively pushed out. And you can watch old newsreels and see photos that look very similar to what we're seeing today in Gaza of people carrying what they can on their backs, walking long distances to get to refugee camps. Um, and that is the beginning of the crisis that we deal with today. In the course of 1948, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians lost their homes and their property and became refugees. They became refugees in neighboring Arab states, particularly Jordan and Lebanon, and they became refugees around the world. And a large number of them, hundreds of thousands of them became refugees in the Gaza Strip. So that today, when we're talking about the Gaza Strip, we're talking about a place where 70% of the population are refugees or descendants of refugees from 1948. Those are the same people who are now refugees again today from the events of the current um, time period. So that's the displacement piece of it, the first displacement. Israel calls that the War of Independence. Palestinians call that the Nakba, the catastrophe. And we get to the third part of the title of today's event, Right of Return. Right of Return is linked directly to that. Right of Return, if you take it out of the Israeli-Palestinian context, is a largely non-controversial concept of international law that says that civilians who are displaced in conflict have a right to return where they came from. 
And when I say largely non-controversial, I mean completely non-controversial. If you look at the UN High Commission on Refugees, which is not an Israel-Palestine-focused organization, they do refugees worldwide. When you look at how they deal with refugee populations, their first choice for resolving any refugee population is to get them home. Because under international law, under international law, refugees have a right to return home. Is civilians are not supposed to become um, sort of helpless pawns in the wars of great powers. Um, with the Israel-Palestine conflict, because what Israel was seeking to create in 1948 was a Jewish state, and identity is important because identity is about demographics. Hold on a second, I just lost my notes. Um, trying to create a Jewish state. The term right of return, when we're talking between Israel-Palestine, becomes extremely fraught because from an Israeli perspective, Palestinians demanding a right of return is effectively a stealth call for genocide and to destroy the state of Israel as a Jewish state. Because if you flood Israel with refugees, remember these are the people who either fled or were exiled in the war, but if, you, if they all come back, Israel loses the demographic edge that it has at this point. And certainly almost since 48, the, the percentage has been about 20% of the of Israel citizens are Palestinians. Those are people who did not flee and weren't expelled. And the other 80% is more or less Jewish. So you can say, ah, we are solidly a Jewish state. And that is not possible if you have right of return. So that is, um, the right of return is a highly politicized um, concept and it's a, it's its place in this conflict is directly related to the, to the displacement that took place in 47 and 48. And then we get to the more recent history. That's the that's the original piece of this. But there's been more wars since then and the war that's the most important and this takes this is where we get to the word settlements. Um, the war that's mo most important here is the 1967 war. The 1967 war in the understanding of Israelis and most Jewish supporters of Israel and most of the world is a defensive war that was fought by Israel against Arab states that chose to attack it and, and completely justified all of that. From a Palestinian perspective, and again, Palestinians did not launch the 1967 war, outside governments did that. Um, from a Palestinian perspective, the 67 war is effectively a war of territorial acquisition. Because at the end of the 67 war, Israel ended up with the rest of the land. So the parts of the land that it didn't get in 48 in the course of the, of the 1948 war, in, if you look at what was considered all of Palestine before 48, it got most of it in the 1948 war, and it got the rest in the 67 war, and it kept it. Um, and it didn't annex most of it. The only part it annexed immediately was East Jerusalem. Um, and it annexed East Jerusalem because, look, the, from a, from the, this perspective of many Israelis, the Israeli victory in 1967 was God-given. It was some. It was a miracle, frankly, from their perspective, that Israel had come out victorious, and not only victorious, but that Israel had, in the course of this war, taken control of. Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, which is the Temple Mount, Haram Sharif, which is the most precious site for most Jewish people. Um, and on top of that, it had taken control of the West Bank, which is the biblical heartland of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. So for people who looked at the territorial aspects of Israel um, as a security idea, they said, great, we now have gotten strategic depth. We have to keep this land because we now have strategic depth that keeps us safer. And in that era, we were worried about things like 
tanks coming across the Jordan Valley and surprising us. So now the Jordan Valley is ours. Um, but for folks who looked at Israel from a more religious messianic perspective, this was a move by God to return the biblical heartland of the Jewish people to the Jewish people. And those people will remind you that the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about Tel Aviv and Haifa and Jaffa. The Bible talks about Hebron and Shiloh and Ophir. I mean, it, it, it's this is the biblical heartland. Um, so what we saw almost immediately after 1967, we saw Israel annex East Jerusalem and begin an intensive project of building Jewish neighborhoods and communities throughout East Jerusalem and surrounding East Jerusalem. And those communities are known as settlements. And settlements is an international legal term. It's not a judgment. I know people sometimes who are very defensive about Israel say that, you know, that's some sort of negative term. It is an international legal term that is used. Your, your alternative, you can either call them settlements or colonies. The idea here is that this is a state that is building civilian outposts for its citizens on territory that is not its sovereign territory or that the world does not recognize as its sovereign territory and therefore they're actually illegal. Um, so Israel began a project of building settlements around and throughout East Jerusalem with the explicit purpose of making sure that Jerusalem could never be divided again. It was divided between Israel and Jordan from 67, from 48 to 67. The idea was never divided again and no part of it can become anybody else's capital. And in, in the process of doing that, the government of Israel annexed, um, declared as state land or declared in other ways, took over sometimes by declaring as parkland and then transferring it over to state land. They basically took over almost every inch of um, unbuilt land in East Jerusalem and turned it over for settlement purposes, for, for purposes of building Israeli government buildings in East Jerusalem, for building Jewish neighborhoods. Um, and they started, um, they implemented policies explicitly designed to curb the expansion of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. So Palestinians since 67 have had almost no ability to obtain building permits. Even if even if they have land that Israel recognizes they own, they can't build on it legally, they can't expand. Um, it's very easy for them to lose their property. If someone, if settlers decide that they covet the land of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, there's very good odds that those Palestinians will wake up one day and realize that suddenly they've been declared absentee landowners, which is a complicated piece of Israeli law, which means that while they're present, they no longer own the house that they're in and they will probably be thrown out of it. So that's East Jerusalem. In the West Bank, um, after 67, almost immediately, the Israeli government sort of after 67 said, well, we're not annexing it, we're just going to hold on to it and agreed that it would be called occupied territory under international law. It is land that is held under belligerent military occupation. That was not a controversial term until maybe a decade ago. Um, but immediately, there, there began a campaign by Israelis, many of them supported by Jewish Americans in particular, a campaign to settle the West Bank. And this became, I mean, if in the early days, it's what we call wildcat settlements. It's very American. Americans out on the frontier, you go out, you got your, you got your car, you got your gun, you got your wife, you stake your claim, and then you defend it. And then you force the Israeli army to come and defend you. Um, and you see it as heroic and a return of the Jewish people to their land. And that became the settlement enterprise, which really kicked off in earnest in maybe 68, 69, and has never stopped. Um, so if you look at the maps in front of you, the map all the way on the right, where the area that was a sort of 
the, the green of the West Bank, you know, if you look at the two maps on the right, the, the middle one in, which shows a pretty solid green West Bank, and then the one all the way on the right where you just see little dots, um, those little dots are basically islands of Palestinian land, mainly defined by where you have Palestinian pre-existing construction. These are Palestinian villages and towns, and pretty much everything else has been taken up by settlements. We have the Oslo process under which, which was supposed to be temporary. We had a temporary arrangement where land was broken into areas A, B, and C, A being areas which are under total Palestinian control. And those are exclusively the major areas of Palestinian inhabitants. So these are villages and cities. Then we have area B, which is the broader area of villages outside of major metropolitan areas, which is under Palestinian civilian control and Israeli security control. And then you have area C, which is 60% of the West Bank. And those are the areas where there are very few Palestinians, but all of the settlers. And that area in the past 20 years has been slowly um, turned into exclusively Israeli land. And what we've seen, and this is where we come back to displacement, that, that was all about settlements. Um, in the course of the past five weeks, um, well, I should say, in the course of the past 55 years, we have seen ongoing efforts by settlers to push Palestinians out of their land, of their homes. We've seen settler violence, and we've also seen Palestinian violence, by the way. Under international law, that is, uh, there is a difference between the um, acts of, um, between violence that is used to resist an occupier, which does not in any way justify uh, terrorism, uh, but there's a difference between that and acts by a an occupier to dispossess the indigenous population of lands and homes. Um, so we've had pretty much unrelenting <laughs> Palestine, Israeli violence and terrorism against uh, Palestinians since 67. Most people have forgotten in the 80s, there was something called the Jewish Underground, which was an organized campaign that included blowing up some West Bank mayors and actually was supposed to culminate it culminated in a plot to blow up the Dome of the Rock, which was foiled and a whole bunch of people went to jail and then they were all pardoned by Shimon Peres. Everyone's forgotten about that. Um, we have the Hebron massacre at the time of Oslo, which some people generally do remember when an American citizen settler went into uh, the cave of the patriarchs, uh, the, which is also known as the Ibrahimi mosque in Hebron, and, and killed 29 Palestinians while they were praying in their mosque and injured hundreds more, which led to the division of Hebron. So the, the settler violence has been a factor which never went away. It has surged in recent years. It was surging before October 7th because the current Israeli government includes some of the most hardline, includes the most hardline pro-settler, pro-violence um, politicians we've seen in any government in the history of Israel. And they're squarely behind settlers and strongly defend the settlers' use of force to get rid of Palestinians. But what we've seen since October 7th in the fog of war and what's happening in Gaza is a new era of displacement. Um, I think so far, I, so I was on a call today, I think someone said 15 Palestinian communities have effectively been erased on the ground in Area C since the start of um, the war in Gaza. And these are situations where you have armed settlers working either with or with the, the tolerance of the Israeli army who basically go into these small communities and harass and terrorize people and, and raise it to such a point where basically the Palestinians at some point are forced to choose. Either we stay here and we probably get killed or we pick up stakes and we move somewhere else. 
And so we are seeing in the course of the, in this present day, in the past five weeks, a new, a new era of displacement at the hands of the settlers, which of course will then bring in a new, a new section, a new, a new subset in calls eventually for a right of return. I'll end there. Thank you so much um, uh, for that very illuminating um, talk. So we would love to have some questions and discussion. Naveen, would you like to begin? Of course. Hey, Lara. I have my mic on now. <laughs> um, so a couple of things you touched on. Um, one was the right of return, and you said that was a guaranteed you know, in international international law, etc. Do you think it's actually realistic to that this would actually is something that's going to happen? Because I know that it's a major sticking issue in negotiations in a peace process. You know, once it starts again, if um, so, do you honestly think there is a right of return that will be implemented? We're talking about about 6 million Palestinian refugees. And as you said, the identity of Israel will completely change. So we can't have the tipping of that scale. Um, the other thing is, like, my biggest concern is, like you said, what is happening in Gaza? Now, what is Gaza going to look like if we have a fifth picture on this map after um, what's been happening for five months? Um, I wonder if it's going to get all patchy as well, um, like the West Bank has. Okay, so those are two big questions. Um, first of all, on right of return, the question of feasibility is, first of all, I would say right of return is not guaranteed to anyone. I mean, the Uyghurs aren't going home. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, an artifact of international law, which in theory, all democratic states, um, small d, abide by. Um, in practice, uh, clearly authoritarian states don't give a crap about right of return of refugees. The challenge here is that Israel likes to both, Israel likes to sort of straddle the two and insist that it is part of a community of nations that lives under international law and is is part of a, part of that, that's, I don't know, that part of the spectrum politically. And at the same time, it has no interest in abiding by international law when that international law conflicts with it, what it wants to do, like not let set, not let refugees come home. Um, so there's no guarantee, I should be clear. And in, one of the challenges when we all talk about international law, and I'm not a lawyer, is that the international law has no, there's no implementing um, authority with international law, right? Um, and that's one of the reasons why we get into situations like now, like what, what can Israel and can't Israel do in the Gaza Strip? Right, you will see video of U.S. leaders basically saying when they're talking about Russia, it is never okay to bomb schools and hospitals. And then you see them saying when it comes to Israel, well, sometimes it's okay to bomb schools and hospitals. Or you can have video of one of the senior EU officials saying that you know cutting off food, water, and fuel for civilians is terrorism. When talking to Russia, when it comes to Israel, it's complicated. So I mean, international law is 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 fraught. In terms of what's feasible, look. I mean, a lot of this comes down to, inter to to political will and whether or not there's goodwill, right? In the era of the peace process, when we were talking about a two-state solution, and to my mind, that era is, is over. I don't think the two-state solution is available right now. I find it implausible that it is coming back. 
Um, and by the way, I find it's not available largely because Israel is ruled by people who say there will never be a two-state solution. We will not permit it. I suffer from a, a weakness in my analysis, which is I look at when I when I look at a political system, I say, if people have power to implement their agenda, you should listen to what they tell you when they tell you what their agenda is. I mean, you should listen to people's agenda regardless, but when they have power, you in particular should listen to the agenda. And the agenda of successive Israeli governments now for a while has been at best lip service to the two-state solution, even while looking to change things on the ground to make sure it can never happen. And the current government, there's not even a pretense. Um, but in the era of the two-state solution, and I, I took part in, in, in track two negotiations for many years, you know, there's all sorts of ways to manage right of return. And 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 that was something when 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 I think Palestinians had held when when it looked like there was a political horizon that could genuinely deliver them some acceptable degree of national self-determination and dignity and independence and end of occupation, I think in that context, it was imaginable that there could be some sort of compromise that would perhaps allow a rhetorical recognition of the right of return, but not a full implementation of it or compensation more than actual physical return or something. It's difficult though, I will say of all the issues back when I was doing uh, track two negotiations and work around two states, talking to Israelis over the course of, you know, from the, from the mid nineties to the second intifada, which is when things sort of fell apart, uh, even beyond that, you could see an, an, a constant evolution in Israelis' thinking about accepting a Palestinian state next to them, about maybe not having to have total control over all the land, over potentially being willing to remove some settlements. Where you didn't have any evolution at all usually was on right of return. Because for Israelis, the founding myth which says we did nothing wrong in 1948. Anyone who left, they left because they were evil and planned to kill us and push us into the sea. They have no rights to anything. And if we open the door even an inch to recognizing that we did wrong to Palestinians in 1948, that's the beginning of the end of our entire Israeli identity and the justness of our cause. And it's a, it's a fascinating kind of psychological um, trying to understand this because it speaks to a great insecurity, which I think Israelis will admit to. There, It's a young state. And there's a sense that if you open the door to admitting that there was, there were, that there was original sin in the creation of Israel, that at that point, it's all lost. So right of return has always been deeply problematic. It's equally problematic on the Palestinian side because it is the core demands of the Palestinian side, right? We lost what people would say, fine, we agree, you're the victims, we're the bad guys, keep our homes, keep our rugs, keep our dishes. There's Jewish family living in the house that I was born in and I can't even go inside to see it. That's the tree my, my dad planted when I was a baby. That's fine, let's make peace based on that status quo. That's really hard and that was hard then. It's gonna be even harder now because now we're talking about, again, Gaza is 70%, 70% of that population, we're talking 2.3 million, 70% are either refugees from inside Israel or descendants of refugees from inside what is now Israel. And Gaza today, I don't know how closely you guys are all watching this, but at this point, Northern Gaza is a wasteland. Israel has spent the last five weeks literally turning Northern Gaza into rubble. And, and if you watch the ground incursion since that started, what wasn't what was damaged previously is now being turned into rubble. 
And there can be discussion of, you know, whether or not Israel intends to ever leave. Bibi's pretty clear he doesn't. But what's happening now, as of last night, is Israel is now doubling down on bombing even in the south and turning more of the South into rubble. The argument being, well, we've chased Hamas out of the North, so now they're in the South. So we told 2.3, sorry, we told 1.2 million people that they had to flee to the Southern part of the area. This entire area is the size of Metro Philadelphia, right? So 1.2 million people have now crammed into the bottom half of the of the area of Philadelphia. So you have 2.2, 2.3 million people in there, many of them wounded, many of them injured, half of them are now internal refugees. And Israel is now bombing them where they were told to go for safety. It is difficult to see how at the, the after times, after we finish this round of violence, whatever that looks like, Gaza is not going to be habitable for a very long time. That's the bottom line. And rebuilding Gaza, and we saw this in previous wars when Israel destroyed large areas of Gaza, reconstruction in Gaza is not something that happens quickly because Israel's argument is we have to control every single piece of wood, every single piece of pipe that comes in for reconstruction because otherwise Hamas may use it to rebuild its, its capacity. And you could argue, fine, they're right. But it's very hard to rebuild homes for 2 million people if every single pipe has to be accounted for as you're building. And what you end up with, and again, I take Israelis, I, I take people who have power seriously. And it was, I think, almost five weeks ago now that a senior IDF official said, at the end of this, Gaza will have no buildings, only tents. I think that's where we're headed right now. And that is now, for Palestinians, this is already the second Nakba. They're already talking about it in terms of either the continuation of the first Nakba or a second Nakba. And we're talking now about millions of people who are going to be refugees with an Israeli sort of body politic, which has embraced the idea that you're refugees because of your own faults, right? You're not all Hamas, but Hamas was in charge and Hamas is Palestinian and you elected them. Don't mind the fact that most of the people in Gaza were not born or were children the last time there were elections in Gaza. And don't mind the fact that not a single neighborhood of Gaza actually elected Hamas by a majority. It won by a plurality, right? And don't, don't pay attention to any of that. Don't pay attention to that before October 7th, Palestinians in Gaza were in the streets protesting Hamas. The bottom line is you brought this on yourself and now you're a, you're a humanitarian problem for the world to deal with. That seems to be where we're headed. I, I take Israelis seriously when they, we had, we had two senior Israeli officials who had an article in the Wall Street Journal two days ago, making the case that the international community has to take in Palestinian, ref, Palestinian migrants. We're not going to call them refugees anymore because refugees, we know that's a problem because they claim rights of return. We're going to call them migrants as if they're people who voluntarily have decided to leave their homes to try to find a better life elsewhere. That's how this is framed. So it, it feels to me like we're opening a new era in this conflict, and it's an era that is really just expanding on and, and exacerbating the previous era's problem, which is do Palestinians even exist in the eyes of Israelis, and do they have any rights at all? Laura, thank you for that. I would like a follow-up question. What you're telling us is illuminating, but depressing. Do you see any hope any way that this could move in a more positive direction um i'm people people never people never bring me um to speak for hope i am i am the 
I, I, my job is, um, I, I've been the Cassandra in my space for a very long time. And there's truly no satisfaction in, you know, people saying, damn, you were right. Cause I don't want to be right. My, the one piece of hope I can give you is I'm sometimes wrong. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'll be wrong. I will say that the first week of this conflict, this crisis, watching Israel's behavior in Gaza, as soon as Israel gave the order to evacuate Northern Gaza, I said, this is going to be a far reaching massacre of civilians. Israel is working to clear cut Northern Gaza and push everyone to the South, ultimately either to leave them in refugee camps in the South or to push them across the border with Egypt. I believe that analysis has proven pretty prescient. Um, I hope that I'm wrong. I hope the international community at some point stands up and says no. I don't see that happening. I hear reports that David Satterfield, the former Assistant Secretary of State, who's now our envoy for dealing with the crisis in Gaza, I hear he's been talking about pushing Egypt to accept Palestinian refugees, which is essentially um, the US as a policy enabling ethnic cleansing, because this is ethnic cleansing. I know people have difficulties with words like genocide or incipient genocide. I would point to all of the Israeli Holocaust and genocide experts who are saying that, so don't believe me, believe them. But at the least, we're talking about ethnic cleansing, because Israel's talking about not giving this up, and Israeli settlers are already talking about resettling it. Um, so, you know, we're going to you know, there was a there was legislation that was introduced on Monday in the House. And it's one of those pieces of legislation that's introduced Monday and marked up Tuesday and passed by committee on Tuesday afternoon. So quick. And this was introduced by progressive, relatively progressive Democrats. It's called the Armed Conflict Migration Act. I suspect it will pass quickly. And it's legislation that is all about good intentions and helping people who, through no fault of their own, are finding themselves, you know, in this difficult place. And specifically, it's about Palestinians in Gaza. And it calls on the US to use its voice, its vote, and whatever other authority it has in international financial institutions to marshal financial support for countries that take in Palestinian migrants. Mm. We're already passing legislation doing that. And that's the Democrats. So I don't know. I, I, I don't I don't see how this happens because at the end of the day, we are now in a humanitarian catastrophe. In Gaza, it's not an, it's not a threat of a humanitarian catastrophe. It's not a crisis. It is a humanitarian catastrophe. People are dying of cholera on the ground. People are starting to die of starvation and thirst in their homes, and that's at that point nobody has the luxury of of national you know fighting for national self determination. At that point, you're just trying to live, which is exactly where people who want to erase Palestinian nationalism want things to be. And in parallel, I should say. We said in the West Bank, we see Palestinian communities being erased. We see Palestinian villages. Right now, Palestinian cities and villages are cut off because Israel is not allowing Palestinians to move from place to place. The areas is shut down. I mean, we talk to our Palestinian colleagues and, and everyone is basically, well, I should say, if you go back three weeks ago, Palestinians in the West Bank woke up to find flyers you can find this online, you can Google it. They found flyers on the, the windshields of their cars in many villages in Arabic from the settlers saying, grab your stuff and flee to Jordan. If you don't, we're going to come and throw you out. Mm. So it's not hysterical for them to see that when they've got an Israeli government full of people who see almost an end time style, God's will that we take all this land and the Arabs are gone. And they see this being implemented in practice, it's it's very hard to see how you get back to anything hopeful. I mean, it's almost like, how do you first survive this? And then we talk about what comes next. 
I would like uh, to, in our few remaining moments, see if other people have questions. Anybody else like to ask a question? Yeah, I have uh, uh, two questions and uh, uh, given our time constraints, uh, a brief answers if, if possible uh, are appreciated. Uh, can you comment uh, briefly about Netanyahu's original alignment uh, with Hamas? Uh, and then secondly, do the Arab states have any cards uh, to play in this game of futures? Two really good questions. The first one is well-documented. You can read about it. It's been well-known for a very long time. I mean, the, the, the ascension of Hamas in Gaza and the ability of Hamas to stay in its role governing Gaza is thanks to the Israeli government. It is the Israeli government, and let's remember Netanyahu has been in power consistently now for almost 20 years. This is his political doctrine, and it's been documented. It's a doctrine that says we want Hamas in power in Gaza because then we never have to have a two-state solution. So long as Palestinian governance is divided between a terrorist organization and the PA, no one can ever expect us to make peace. So this is good. And, you know, people will talk about, you know, stopping the Congress is really big on stopping terrorist financing and all that. The bottom line is money has been getting to Gaza for years because Israel allows it to via Qatar. And that's been a, a, a very clear arrangement and something that, that, that Israel wanted, um, which is one of the reasons why Israelis are so mad at Bibi today. I mean, Bibi's in big trouble politically, domestically for letting this happen um, for, for all of it. The second question is what cards do Arab countries play have to play? It's it's a great question. Look, Israel has spent the past, and again, this is the Bibi doctrine. Um, since the Trump era, the only thing Israel is really interested in is normalization with the Arab world, right? We build this 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 wall of 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 relations between Israel and the Sunni Arab world against Iran. We basically wall off the Palestinian issues so no one has to deal with it. We all get rich, we all get strong, everybody's happy, we're secure. It's awesome. So arguably the countries that have normalized with Israel have some cards to play. It so far looks like they're not interested in playing them. It looks much more like they want to wait this out so they can go back to normalizing because they do have shared interests vis-a-vis -vis Iran. They do have shared interests vis-a-vis -vis things like shared surveillance tech and fighting their own their own zealots. Um, there, there's lots of illiberal shared values right now between Israel and the Arab world. And except for Jordan, and Jordan's a special case because for Jordan, the Palestinian issue is existential. Right. Jordan and Egypt, but more Jordan, because Jordan has a huge Palestinian population. When when Israel looks like it's maybe thinking about expelling Palestinians across the Jordan River, the Jordanian government, the Hashemite kingdom says, holy crap, this could be the end of our country. And by the way, Israelis will tell you, Palestinians have a state. It's Jordan. Forget the Hashemite kingdom. Thank you. You've been friends of ours for years. We don't need you anymore. You're really the state of Palestine. Go away. So when you hear the king of Jordan speaking hard truths to Israel, Israelis, I think, or the Israeli leadership understands this is because the Jordanians have their own personal equities at stake in this. This is why Jordan took such a firm position at the International Court of Justice against the barrier when Israel started building the barrier with the West Bank. The, 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 the future of Palestinians having a political horizon that's not in Jordan is vital for the Jordanians. 
And for Egypt, which is the other country that really does have leverage here, because Egypt is Israel's largest land border, right? Having its peace agreement with Egypt, taking it for granted, I mean, that's that's the centerpiece of Israel's national security strategy. And this is the main reason why I would argue Egypt, Israel has not just moved to push the Palestinians into Egypt and say, effectively, screw you, CC, we're going to do it anyway. Um, because it's very clear, at least up until now, the Egyptian argument is, if you try to fix the Palestinian problem or the Gaza problem on our back, you will lose your peace treaty with us. We are not willing to take on a Muslim Brotherhood affiliated uh, terrorist organization. We are not willing to become the home to a restive and almost certainly recalcitrant and um, recidivist population that's going to want to get back to Gaza. And we're going to be in charge of preventing that from happening. We can't take on an impoverished refugee population. I mean, they have their own domestic interests as well. I mean, that so far has been the biggest check on Israel's ability to simply shove Palestinians out of Gaza, close the border and say, we're done. Any other questions? Well, I have one last one. What if Israelis woke up and said, we don't want this government anymore? Any chance that a different government could proceed differently? So Israelis have been saying they don't want this government since it came into power. Um, for folks who watch the domestic political scene, it's been an extraordinary um, exercise in, in democratic protest. And there have been hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the street up until October 7th every week protesting this government. But to be absolutely clear, they're not protesting it over treatment of the Palestinians. They're protesting it over its other illiberal strands, which are, by the way, directly related to its treatment of the Palestinians. I don't think Israelis still fully grasp that the architects of the illiberal anti-democratic judicial reform are driven, and I say this because I actually listen to them, they are driven first and foremost by a desire to be able to do anything in the West Bank and not have any Supreme Court telling them what they can and cannot do. Um, the beginnings of the judicial reform um, movement in Israel began in 2006 with disengagement from Gaza. And it was the outrage that the court permitted the, the government of Ariel Sharon to abandon the settlements in Gaza. Um, so that, that's the beginning of this whole thing. But if you had a new, if you had elections tomorrow based on polls in Israel, you would elect a government that looks a lot like the last government. And that government fell apart basically because it refused, it fell apart because it refused to, to in any way soften the stance on, not, it's more complicated. That government was as hardline in many ways as this government when it comes to the West Bank. When it comes to Palestinians, this is not the, the, this, what Israelis want to bring down this government for is not a right-left position when it comes to Palestinians. It's about everything else. It is very difficult to see any Israeli election that would change that. Because at this point, after decades of the international community, and particularly the US, basically giving Israel total impunity when it comes to how it treats Palestinians, and in effect, um, legitimizing and rewarding Israeli leaders who say, screw the Palestinians, we'll do what we want. Um, leaders who say anything else now are considered to be suckers. They're considered to be you know, pro-Hamas suckers. So it's it's it, there's not much left of a Jew. There's not much left of a left in Israel, um, and in the direction things are going now in Israel, with the is growing repression related to what's happening in Gaza. We just had 
you know, two two of the key Arab members of the Knesset. One of the ways that you always talk about the health of Israeli democracy is that there's Arab members of the Knesset. Well, two of them were just uh, suspended by the Knesset Ethics Committee because they protested against the war in Gaza. They called for ceasefire. They've been suspended by the Knesset committee. The current Israeli government wants to actually change the rules to allow them to be thrown out of the Knesset entirely, to, to deem their parties illegal because they're not sufficiently Zionist. So I, I don't have any good news there. I mean, the end of the Bibi era, I think a lot of people will say it would be great. And a lot of people say that if there's elections tomorrow, Bibi would lose. I would say that the and the the death of Bibi's political career has been announced many times, and not unlike some people here, he seems to keep coming back. But even if he does go, the most moderate voices in his own government are one hundred percent in favor right now of bombing Gaza to gravel. Yeah. One last question, Maya. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks, Laura, for your presentation. Um, question about the rising Jewish voices in the U.S. Uh, who are saying, you know, Israel is doing this not in our name. How do you feel like that's could potentially play a role um, to change things around, if any? And that's a huge question. It feels a little bit, as a student of history, I was not around then, it feels a little bit like the era of the student protests in Vietnam. And I don't know how bad things have to get before people wake up and something changes. I don't know if you had to have a massacre of Jewish students at a university while they're protesting, which is what I think what it took in the Vietnam era. Um, at this point, what we're seeing is a huge, a huge push of, of young, younger Jewish and non-Jewish, but huge number of not in our name, Jewish voice for peace, all of that. And what you see in parallel is the Anti-Defamation League, Jewish members of Congress, basically slandering them as pro-Hamas, right? There was a, um, you may have heard, there was a demonstration outside the DNC headquarters in Washington, D.C. last night. I was watching it in real time. The video I was watching was of young people locking arms, singing the, the old spiritual that people sing at protests, whose side are you on, whose side are you on? And that was all it was until the police came and attacked them. And in the telling of this, we have Brad Sherman, a Jewish Democrat from California, who went on the news immediately and called them pro-Hamas, violent pro-Hamas protesters, and accused them of trying to break into the building. Journalists on site are like, that didn't happen. The video show, it didn't happen. But as of today, we have the, the Jewish, the, the JCRC, the, the one of the Jewish Federation bodies in Washington, mm -hmm. issuing a statement condemning pro-Hamas violent activists, right? We have efforts now, we've had multiple hearings in Congress since October 7th that are specifically about how do you shut down student protest? And they're talking mainly about SJP, but also the Students for Justice in Palestine, but also about JVP and now also about If Not Now. Um, and what's extraordinary here is the legacy Jewish American leaders here are effectively condemning their children and grandchildren because this is the movement of this generation of, of, of Jewish kids. It's their parents and grandparents that aren't there. Um, and, and as we're seeing you know, the spectacle of Jewish, we, we, we're listening to, to Mike Johnson and Marco Rubio, the, the, these sort of Christian evangelical right-wingers condemning these anti-Semitic pro-Hamas Jewish children um, who are protesting, not pro-Hamas. They're just saying ceasefire now, not in our name. And unfortunately, the organized legacy Jewish community leaders led by organizations like the ADL, who have a lot of juice right now, because yes, there is rising anti-Semitism. Um, so people are listening to them, except what they're saying is, don't really worry about the Nazis. You need to worry more about these Jewish kids talking about ceasefire. 
I don't know how this breaks through. I fear that it breaks through, unfortunately, when there's been um, some, the, the kind of events we saw in the Vietnam era that were just so shocking for Americans that they have to wake up. Um, but I don't know if that's optimistic or not, but there you go. Uh, do the Israeli uh, peace groups have any influence or are they completely marginalized? I'm thinking of Beth Salem, Women in Black, uh, Jewish Women for Peace, which is known, I think, as having one of the largest grassroots uh, women's uh, membership uh, in the country. Uh, are they kind of uh, voices in the wind? So I would distinguish between Israeli organizations and um, and U.S. organizations. Israeli organizations are doing their jobs as best they can. Um, but Selim is out there. We support them. I would encourage everyone to support them. They're doing incredible work. Um, but I mean, it's not unlike, you know, you think of like something, you know, the ACLU during what we're going to be facing now, which is an era of rising kind of McCarthyism. It, they're overwhelmed. I mean, they're reporting on settler violence in the West Bank. They're reporting on what's happening in Gaza as best they can. They're reporting on what Hamas is doing, which is also a violation of international law and human rights, right? You're trying to cover all that. And at the same time, for your trouble, you're being called a traitor, uh, a, a terrorist mm -hmm. sympathizer, all of that. I mean, we're having colleagues of ours are being doxxed. They're being attacked. It's, it's just horrific. Um, and the courage of these organizations to continue, uh, both the Palestinian and the Israeli organizations, it's it's incredibly humbling. In terms of the groups on the ground here, I think it's being I think what you're seeing is the courage being led by by a new generation of kids. But it's not just that you can watch there's there's horrifying video um, from the the Israel march that took place on Tuesday. Um, and it's it, it it's yeah the 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 caption is you know a Jewish woman held held up a sign and it's Medea Benjamin from Code Pink. It's not relevant that it's Medea. I don't think most people understood that's who it was. But she's standing there and says, "I'm a Jewish woman and I I I want ceasefire and I support peace or something." And it's just video of her being surrounded largely by young Jewish people, people wishing that she's raped, wishing that she's killed in front of her children, wishing that she's shoved into an oven. I mean, it's it's it, it just goes on and on and on. And and she just stands there and and she's very she she's I don't think I could have done what she did there. It is very very difficult in the Jewish community to stand up right now. I, I keep I keep warning my husband, um, who doesn't work in these issues, that at some point someone's going to figure out who he's married to and it's going to be a problem. Um, I, I think we are entering an incredibly ugly McCarthyistic era. And all of us who work in the space are, are looking around saying, you know, how long can I do this work? At what point is my work declared illegal? At what point is my work declared anti-Semitic? At what point does my bank say you can't do your work anymore because we've decided it's we don't want to do this? It's the the pressures. Um, and we've seen this elsewhere. We we saw this for years in Europe with the the we call it the the de-risking or debanking where Jewish voice, just as an example. The banks, there's an organization of Jewish Voice for Peace in Germany, which years ago, there was a campaign by some people related to the Foundation for Defense and Democracies, and they basically publicly called out the banks that were providing banking services to this NGO until the bank finally said, we're closing all your bank accounts. You can't operate without bank accounts. Well, on that note, we are going to need to stop. Thank you, Lara. Um, you have given us food for thought for sure. Um, and thanks everybody for coming. Can we I have... say one one last thing? Sure. 
for, for all the horror and the negative stuff I'm saying, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up hearing about the McCarthy era and I grew up, I remember talking to my grandparents and hearing about the reason the McCarthy era was able to happen is that people let it happen. People got scared and they allowed people to be, to be basically pilloried. They allowed good people to take the fall because they were too scared. I wonder if this moment is different. And when I see some of the work that's being done at the grassroots from the faith communities, from the academic communities of people still, even with what's going on, putting their names on letters, defending their colleagues, defending their students, defending their friends. It, if anything gives me hope right now, right now, it's that, because this only works if a society lets it work. Um, and, and if society stands up, it's very hard to, to sh completely shut down free speech. On that. See, just a, a quick reminder that uh, we have two more programs in this series, uh, November 30th and December 7th. Early next week, you'll be getting uh, registration links for those two programs.